We very much like welcoming musicians to Soundtrack and so I was incredibly excited to learn about a documentary on the life of Sri Lankan British rapper MIA, not least because, well, I've been a huge fan since my days at Radio 1. Matangi Maya MIA was directed by her longtime friend Steve Loveridge and follows 22 years in her life, including her rise to fame and her perspective on the controversy sparked over her music, public appearances and political activism. It's been incredibly well received and won a special jury award at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Now, one publication that would almost certainly take a keen interest in the subject matter of Steve and MIA's documentary is The Economist, which you might already know covers a huge variety of topics. It's not just finance and economics, but intelligent, informed and accurate pieces about science, technology and the arts too. For instance, you might want to learn more about cultural censorship in Lebanon or how certain films offer escapism during these most testing of times. But don't take our word for it. You can try The Economist out for free, courtesy of Soundtracking. All you've got to do is text SOUND to 78070. That's SOUND to 78070. And you'll get a free copy of The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Now, as we'll discover, these forces have always been at the centre of MIA's focus too, what with her willingness to confront big, big themes through her music. The album Matangi is just one example, and we kick off with the title track. Congratulations, first of all, on this awesome documentary. I know you didn't make it. That's, that's what, <laughs> that is what I was going to say, but you've saved me saying it now. But I, I shot I, some of it. Yeah, yeah, you shot a lot of it. I mean, there was a, there's a great line from, from Steve, your director, when he talks about you guys meeting and, and at college and stuff. You're never without a camera. You always had a camera with you the whole time. Why do you think that was, first of all? Why was a camera almost like a third limb to you I guess at that point in, in those formative years? Well I wanted to be a filmmaker 
really badly because I just felt that I met so many people with such amazing stories that needed to share their story. So I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker to be specific, really, and get their voices out. And at the same time, just, um, you know, just by how things went. My own life, there was just so much happening. Mm. And so I used the camera as like a tool for sort of sneaking in some sort of like therapy because, you know, Sri Lankans didn't really deal with concept of needing to be counselled yeah. or talk through situations or even seeing anything objectively or subjectively. You yeah. Know, you were just in it. And I think the camera really helped me as well to be like, okay, look, this is all happening around me, you know, and it's just never going to stop. But I can sort of understand it differently than mm -hmm. to just become completely consumed, yeah. And with this documentary, when did the conversation and how did the conversation start that Steve wanted to make this? I really wanted to make this documentary in 2011 because I made the Maya album and I'd sort of got myself into topics that other people weren't talking about, especially in music, mm -hmm. like the internet and privacy, Facebook and Google and data and WikiLeaks and all of these things, you know, truth and lies or concept of fake news and how the government could exploit all this uh, data or information. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I'd sort of stumbled on all of these topics because I'd studied the Sri Lankan government and how they manoeuvred through the last stages of the civil war. So that's really all I was going by, mm -hmm. like personal experience. But then I you know, sat back and thought about how it could affect the rest of the world if that was a norm and that if every government did that, you know. So then I made this album and I talked about Google like an agency you can hire that yeah. could work for you to sell you info or, you know, Facebook. and the, the barrage of trolling was just so intense, you know. But I realised that that was definitely a space that needed more information mm -hmm. and that m needed more discussions. So then that was the first time I went to Steve and I was like, I think this bit needs more than music. And maybe the documentary, because we filmed so much of that tour, I was like, maybe that's what it will help, like you should cut a film about this album and about the internet. Really, it was supposed to be a film about the internet and Maya, yeah. How did you feel 
when you watched the finished film for the first time? It wasn't about the internet. <laughs> I was like, Did he tell you that before? Hold on. Then, yeah, the Maya <laughs> section of the album's in it for about five minutes. And I was like, yeah, well, that just kind of went over his head. And I knew it might happen because he moved to America to make the film when I didn't have a visa. So I was like, you know. Where's he gone? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I was like, oh, even for America, it's too soon to talk, talk about that stuff. Mm, yeah. You know? It still sort of feels like it's too soon now. You know, we might have to wait another seven years and that internet film might still be relevant, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I'm not that mad at him. You want to hear my story? I'm going to show you my story. What's that song about? Stereotypes attached to like immigrants and stuff like that is that they come and take the jobs and take the money. At least 100 have arrived in South London. I had to deal with the fact that I was different and I was an immigrant. The government say there are too many of them. In Sri Lanka, we were surrounded by a civil war. My dad was the founder of the Tamil Resistance. The maid was so strong for what he's put us through. Music was my medicine. It just blew up so quickly. I lived through a war, came as a refugee that is now a pop star. What are the goalposts? What do I do? And they bombed the airport. Bloody world is looking at this. I don't understand. That's you, and that's my little brother. Two out of six boys are dead. There's a genocide going on. We don't want to talk about death. Talk about Beverly Hills. We get frantic emails from people who say that MIA is a terrorist. The worst thing they could do to you is to make you irrelevant. Action. What experience are we allowed to share from these places? You've got access to a microphone. Please use it to say something. We're used as a scapegoat to build a wall, but people have always mixed and moved, and interesting things happen because of it. emotion that you felt though because I was so angry for you in terms of I was at Radio 1 when your records were being played and I remember the first time here in Galang and being desperate to be able to play it on daytime radio and, and knowing kind of what a fight I had you know people had on daytime radio in their hands sometimes getting to play your music and desperate to play it because it said so much and the music was fantastic yeah yeah Boy, say what? Go on, girl, say what? What? 
land and call and speak the slang now. Boy say what, Guan girl say what, what slam? Galang galang galang, galang 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 galang. Shotgun get down, get down get down get down, get a get a get a down get down get down. Too late you down, dun 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 dun, dun 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 dun. But then it just in terms of like you as an artist and how the media portrayed you and that's what I think one of the brilliant things about this film is that you get to the truth. You get to find out, you know, why you made decisions, why you decided to do X, Y and Z and stuff. And it's amazing in that respect. And it makes everything make sense really, more so than it did when you first hear it or see it or whatever. You know, the first thing I did after I saw the film was just go back to the start, listen to every record you know, from that first album right through and stuff, and it all kind of just went, all right, I get it even more so now. So I don't know for you watching it, what the emotion was that you felt watching the film. I think the first time I watched it, I was like in shock. The second time I watched it, I was very emotional that Steve had sort of incorporated, you know, the stuff about my grandma and <laughs> did get in some of the things that were really important to me, because how did he even find that footage? Because some of the stuff I'd shot, I'd never watch back, you know, I'd just like tape in and I'd put it in a box. Yeah, it was just like mind blowing to be like, how did he find that shot? Like he must have watched every single tape, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like really, like really watched it because that was like the random bit of a random swing on a random camera. <laughs> yeah, so I was a bit more like, wow, I'm glad that he's resisted making it too sensational because mm -hmm. it could have been, you know, with my personal stuff and my family. And to me, I just felt like he didn't sensationalize a single part. You talk quite yeah. a lot in the film about, about music influences and there's a great bit where you talk about the radio and falling asleep with the radio on and then suddenly you were kind of opened, the world of hip hop was opened up to you and stuff. What about film? In terms of growing up, did you watch I a loved lot? film. Did you watch yeah. a lot of films? Yeah, what kind yeah. of stuff did you watch film-wise growing up? When I lived in Sri Lanka, we hired a, a video recorder once a month, my street that I lived on, and everyone would rent films, Tamil films, and then we would screen them for 24 hours because you rented the video recorder for 24 <laughs> hours. So people didn't sleep. And so we would stay up once a month for 24 hours and watch like this marathon of Tamil movies. So that was like my beginning. So my mum would send me to school while all the sort of like neighbours gathered in this one room and I would do everything in my power to skip school that day and I would go there and just like puking everywhere <laughs> and just like, you know, get in a fight or something and just whatever situation it took so I would get um, sent home early and then I would come back and sit with all the neighbours and watch all the films. So I was really obsessed from a young age and people used to kind of, that's what I was known as like the Wikipedia for movies, you know, if <laughs> yeah. people, any, anyone wanted to know anything about the Tamil film industry, I was that person. And then when I came to England... You know, we lived in Fitzridge Estate in Mitcham mm. and there was a video shop on the way to like the supermarket next to the cemetery. I can't even remember what it's called now. And yeah, out of all of us, I guess, as a family, I'm the only one who had a membership. 
there. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, it just kind of carried on. That was my thing. I was the person that they came to to run movies. Uh, yeah. and, you know, like, <laughs> it has to be authorised and approved, you know, so everyone's taste had to go through me and stuff. So, yeah, it was just sort of obvious that when I got to a certain age that I was going to become a filmmaker. But the Tamil films, was there a... Know nothing about the Tamil film industry and the types of films that, that you'd watch and stuff. Was was it a was it a real marriage of those you know visuals and sound and soundtrack and and music being ingrained with it as well? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the songs that I sample comes yeah. from my movie collections from my twenty four hour <laughs> binges. It does, yeah. Like all of those were made in that time period. Can you remember any of the? The composers who were part of that sound. I mean, the person that I sample in Bamboo Banger, Ilya Raja. films and that piece of music and you want to sample it yeah definitely I, I like a song and then you know I want to work with it with his songs it's like that I still listen to them you know he's basically like the Beatles for us right you know like how the Beatles achieved like the pinnacle of songwriting within a space of four years yeah it was the same with Ilya Raja he just like there was a moment when he defined the entire existence for that sort of like a bunch of people in that part of the world. Mm. They dress like these songs, they walk like these songs, they talk like these songs. Like the entire, you know, people were being born to these songs. <laughs> in the sense that they were a band and there was all these like 500 other bands yeah but they were the best at the bands it's like he was the 
only band, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Like when I say people were being born to his music, like yeah, there was generations <laughs> of Indians being born to Ilya Raja's songs because there was only Ilya Raja's songs. <laughs> His only one until Al Rahman came, and Al Rahman only happened to come along because he was Ilay Raja's assistant. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he was like really exposed to this guy for a long time, and he was like, fine, you know. And he broke out of it, and then he became that guy. first musician in Indian music that was really comfortable with switching over to synthesizers you know so he took very classical music and really understood classical music and classical Indian structures and then transferred it to this kind of you know machinery the machine music and that had never happened before mm. and that was so revolutionary and then he also added sort of like Western twists here and there, and you know, it was new every time. Yeah, because to me it's really special because he knows and <clears throat> I went there to India to work with his son when I was making Kala mm. during that time 
the stories they always say and tell me about him and sometimes, you know, like, he, he has to go and remove himself and go and live on a mountain in order to, like, get struck by the same thing, in order to, like, <laughs> come back and make music. I, I just love stories like that, mm. you know? Like, he's not doing it for any other reason. Like, he, it's just so spiritual for him, yeah. the experience, and it's really cool. What was it like for you working with A.R. Rahman? Yeah, A.R. Rahman's different, you know, because yeah. he's more, like, worldly and he's travelled and he's yeah. not, like, he's just more, like, out there a bit more. And he's cool. Yeah, he's he's cool, but I don't have the same sense of, you know, I have immense respect for A.R. Rahman as a music composer and yeah. a musician. Like, I think he's a genius. But, like, Ilya Raja's just, I just like that he's so he's just so set in his way mm. like he doesn't play there's just no game like yeah. he doesn't even get it mm-hmm. you know yeah with paper planes and when that it completely exploded you know with its involvement it was you know as a single in its own thing but also being part of of slumdog it was a perfect marriage in terms of using a contemporary track as part of a film and stuff it was just it was really amazing for you and seeing the reaction and response that that track got within that film what was that like for you that was just so many different things coming together wasn't it it's a bit of a yeah it was a very weird time it kind of was weird when I was making the record and I just kept playing some of my demos to my mates they would all get all go oh this song's nice you know (laughs) it's like it's got gunshots in it like what is so nice about it and they'd always go oh it's just really floaty and (laughs) It was really weird because it was the reject song that was like, you know, last on the demos that I would play no and it was way. never even finished. And yeah, like I was really pl- proud of my songs with Ilya Raja samples in it, obviously. <laughs> you know, that's the one I'm like, look at this thing. <laughs> and yeah, this one was always at the back. But obviously I'd been in West London and I'd listened to the Clash records mm-hmm. a, a lot and they were all sort of from there. That sort of mindset, I guess, was also part of me. And everyone thought like that. Like, it wasn't like it was different, but people just were a bit more non-conformists and were okay about that. And that was just like what was cool about that neighborhood, I suppose. It's like the old school way it used to be before it is the way it is now. Yeah, so I think that that was part of me. And when I went to America, it just... Yeah, I, I always like valued that a mm. lot, you know. Yeah. I had no idea that it was the sort of thing that it was going to become, you know. But it because it lined up with the financial crisis, I think it just kind of made, like even though it was in Slumdog Millionaire for a different reason, it's all of it happening together mm. that kind of made it happen. Yeah, it meant different things to different people. Yeah, exactly. Different times, totally. I fly like paper, get high like planes. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. If you come around here, I'll make a more day. I get one done in a second if you wait. I fly like paper, get high like planes. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. If you come around here, Every step I get to 
I want to talk about like how iconic your videos have always been as well. And I remember when Bad Girls, first time seeing that, and it was like, oh man, I want to see the feature length version of this video. Do you know what I mean? There's, they were like short films, really. And that, I guess, goes back to whether you direct the video or not and stuff. It's, it's, you can tell that it's, you're in, you're there, you know, visually and stuff. And that goes back, I guess, to, you know, you wanted to be a filmmaker at the start. And as well as it being about the music, the visuals have got to, got to say something they've got to show something as well yeah but the footage that I shot that's in the film is not like that though is it it's like Steve if you'd called me and said you need a shot of me eating a bowl of cereal I would have chose a really good shot for you you know sometimes I, I think what's the point of that shot obviously I care about the visuals that I did think that he could have run it by me <laughs> yeah. What do you remember about that video, Bad Girls video, and making that and that dropping and the reaction that it got as well? Well, we had to really fight hard to get that video made. Everyone kind of, why are you doing this? Then I had to call up Jimmy Iovine. I was in India and I had to call up Jimmy Iovine and I was like, it's about female empowerment and Hillary Clinton's going to really love it. And that's what I had to say to get the money. And then he's like, cool, fine. Like, have the money. And Here's the blank check. Exactly. But no, he, it wasn't a blank check. I had to fight for the rest of it. I had to raise a lot of money. So we went to, like, lots of different people. But I got, I got some money from Jimmy. And then I think I said different things to different people <laughs> to get it. But eventually we had this amazing video. So great. And I only made that video because... Bad Girls was on a mixtape called uh, Vicky Leaks and people loved that song. So it was sort of like a throwaway song. Mm -hmm. So everyone's like, why are you making a video to a mixtape song? Like, it makes no sense at this day and age. You've got other shit to do, like shoot videos for like your real songs <laughs> from the album, you know, and not this mixtape one. But I, I'd sort of given up at that point and I didn't really care because it was post-Maya I'm quitting music, so I'm just going to do this one last thing. Yeah, and then it sort of just came out, and then, you know, then I ended up recording another album. Get back, get down, pull me closer if you think you can hang. Hands up, hands tight, don't get screaming if I blow you with a bang. Then reading about some of your kind of when you were at St Martin's about the filmmakers that you found inspiring, people like Spike Jones and Harmony Korine and the Dogma '95 movement as well. What were the influences on you at the time? Are these still influences? Did you what was it about their filmmaking that? Yeah, I think that was a very magical moment in cinema for me at least because that was like my years. It's like coming of age and cinema suddenly being possible or open to you as a poor person you know 
and suddenly it wasn't like this unachievable, mm -hmm. massive thing and you had to go to Hollywood to achieve it and that you could just have a video camera and achieve it. And that was so liberating. I, I can't remember if it was um, who said this quote, but it might have been, I don't want to get the name wrong, but somebody said a quote, a filmmaker, director, said that the future of cinema is not going to come from Hollywood, but it's going to come from like someone with a camcorder in, mm. in a trailer somewhere. And I saw myself as a trailer person, right? Even though in England we're not very trailery. But I was like, yeah, Council Flat, that would do. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I was really inspired. And I think that's also why the camera sort of came into my living space because my brother you know, when he was 16, he got sent to a Young Offenders Institute. So it happened at the same time mm. that I was getting inspired by filmmakers like Spike, who was shooting videos, say, the Praise You video, which yeah. was very like, yeah, swing a camera around. We've come a long, long way together Through the hard times and the good I have to celebrate you, baby. I have to praise you like I year old brother was getting sent to a young offenders and I needed to him to bridge the gap you know I felt that I was so privileged having access to work by these directors to sort of see the possibilities and somebody like my brother just would not have the access yeah or come across films like that and uh, so yeah I had to kind of use a camera to make it seem possible and that he could see himself or understand the situation or film the people he was around or record and just kind of see things objectively and then exposing him to directors who made all of these kind of stories be interesting that mm -hmm. were really happening to real people or real life situations that weren't like fantasy situations yeah and I thought that's yeah that was just really important I remember people like, like Lynn Ramsey and Andre Arnold being, you know, with films like uh, Rock Catcher and Andrea's Fish Tank and stuff yeah. like that being being about real situations and and those, you know. Yeah, now and again you get those films yeah. and it just, like, does so much. And also back in London during those times, the divisions, like social divisions, were like that. It wasn't so so much a racial one than an economic one. Yeah. You know, like when you were on a council flat, you were just, everybody was on a council flat, you know? Yeah. And it was before council flats were sort of cool and middle class, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. it was, I'm talking about the time when council flats were actual, like, working class council flat. And <laughs> it seemed like the only way forward, you had to have that understanding mm. or to 
embrace it or you were never going to get out of it, yeah. you know. I read a brilliant thing that you put up on um, social media last week. I just pulled it out because I just thought it was a great line which says, I want to facilitate a dialogue, not create a conflict. I think when you see this documentary, that could almost be a tagline for it as well. Yeah, because I guess you're going through it on all sides. My family have had to deal with something very new that other Tamil families don't go through. And it's not, you know, before it was like, your dad went off and formed Eros. So he wasn't a Tamil tiger, which a lot of people say. And even in the trailer, when they go, Maya's dad started the Tamil resistance, and then they cut a running tiger next to it. <laughs> and I'm like, Steve, you're doing that same thing. <laughs> I was like, you're doing that same thing. But he had this um, movement called Eros, which is very weird that he would name it after the god of love. Mm. <laughs> I like but yes. Yeah, stood for Elam Revolutionary Organization of Students. That was like the most difficult thing to work with when we were growing up because everyone's like, you're different because you're like this. And mm. because of this person, you can't do certain things that other people can do or go places that other people could go or live in certain towns. And it was always like that. And that's what made everything difficult. And then when you become a pop star, it's totally like, <laughs> just like the flip side yeah. oh you can't go here you can't do this you can't do that you can't say this on the internet you can't post this picture on Facebook and it's completely for a different reason yeah. <laughs> it's like the polar opposite of being a revolutionary you're just like actually just like this sort of you know you're a musician and they're like what the hell is that you know, like, yeah. it's not like any Tamils have ever it's not that They've never become pop stars, but music industry itself just doesn't exist because mm. there is only Ilya Raja. You know? <laughs> like, it only it. exists in films. Like, there's no separate industry. Mm. Like, the radio plays film soundtracks. You don't play individual pop star songs mm. by bands. Like, they don't exist. So it was huge. I think the first day when I went home with my Galang demo, they put it in the bin. No. I had to get it out of the bin. <laughs> I was like, this is my song, thanks. <laughs> I love it back now, and they're like, yeah, whatever. Listen, I hope I get to chat to you next when you've made your feature because I really hope that you kind of use all that filmmaking experience that you've had. And I'm going to do a film. Yes. Yes, I have to. You have I really to. do. I really do. It's getting very annoying that people keep saying <laughs> it to me. Just do it. And you know what? I would be doing it if Steve wasn't like embroiling me into his <laughs> press junket to promote his film, you know? Wicked. But yeah, most of the time the musician dies. So <laughs> we're finding out what happens when the musician still is alive, right? Exactly. <laughs> Basically, you get sucked into press junkets. <laughs> but 
I really have to put my foot down and go and do this filmmaking thing. Like it's about time. I look forward to it. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> Sampled by MIA in Birdsong. That's Oru Kili Uruguthu by Ilya Raja. Running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the Sri Lankan musician. My huge thanks to MIA for taking the time to talk to us. Matangi Maya MIA is on general release now and is an absolutely fascinating watch, even if the finished film is a little different from what she was expecting. Now, there are Spotify playlists for all of our shows via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes. Fans of MIA might want to check out the episode with Danny Boyle, in which he talks with great affection about her, A.R. Raman and Slumdog Millionaire. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And don't forget to snap up your free copy of The Economist by texting SOUND to 78070. Next up then is none other than Bradley Cooper, who stars in, directs and has written Lady Gaga's full-length feature film debut performance, A Star Is Born. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 